0: Welcome to Seasons. I'm Sol Castro.
1: And I'm Chef Plum.
0: We are prepping for Hanukkah this week by bringing you conversations about the food and wine that's so central to the holiday.
1: Ahead on Seasoned, we talk with the team behind the Crown Market in West Hartford. This kosher market has been serving the Jewish community in our state for more than 80 years.
0: Plus, the world of kosher wine has expanded in really exciting ways. Later in the hour, a sommelier explains how kosher wine is made and recommends producers making great wine right now.
1: But first, we asked Shifra Klein to talk with us about Hanukkah and the foods she loves to cook. She's the editor-in-chief and co-founder of Fleishig's Magazine, a publication devoted to modern kosher cuisine.
0: Shifra, for the uninitiated, what exactly are we celebrating for Hanukkah?
2: We are celebrating the miracle of the Jews retaking the second temple. They were kicked out over 2,000 years ago under the Syrian Greek rule, um, and they were kicked out of the temple, and they retook it, I think it was in the year like 163 or something BCE, so this is like centuries ago. Um, And the miracle that happened there was that when they retook the temple, they couldn't find oil to light the menorah. The menorah was a traditional ceremony uh, that they did in the temple, and they couldn't find oil. And they found this one little jug of oil, and it miraculously stayed lit for eight days and eight nights. And so that was considered a miracle at the time. And we celebrate this miracle and also the retaking of the temple. Hanukkah actually means... Uh, dedication. So it's like the rededication of the temple. And that's what we celebrate the miracle of lights and the miracle of the oil.
1: I love the idea of, I mean, anytime there's a holiday with food, it's always makes me happy. But I think the celebratory food kind of varies depending on which part of the world you're from, right? Can you talk about that a little bit?
2: Yeah, definitely. Really, the Jews were dispersed throughout the world at different times for many different reasons. And because of that, the celebration of Hanukkah varies depending on where you're from and the foods and ingredients that you had around you. So, for example, Moroccan Jews will enjoy stinge on Hanukkah. It's this really amazing Moroccan donut. It's incredible. If you ever are able to try it, I highly recommend you do. If you have Russian roots like myself, you'll enjoy a latke, which is like potato-based, potato-onion savory. So really depending on where you're from. But today in America, the more popular representations of Hanukkah our latkes and donuts or yot
0: I've never met a, a latka that I didn't like. Do you uh do you have a, a secret for your latkes?
2: Oh so many. Okay. You know, it's all in the details. If you ask a chef or someone who's passionate about cooking, it's all in those little steps that you do that make the final dish perfect. So when it comes to latke, number one, I love using Yukon gold potatoes because they're a little creamier and they cook a little faster. After I grate the potatoes, I squeeze out every morsel of liquid that could possibly remain in the potato. Mm -hmm. I do the same for the onion and then quickly mix one or two eggs and a tablespoon or two of flour a pinch of salt and pepper, and I fry them up. And you want to heat up your oil slowly. A lot of people start off on high heat, and that's a mistake because it makes the oil burn, the smoke point goes up, and then you're left with like black latkes that aren't perfect in the center. So you want to heat up your oil from like a medium temp and wait for it to reach the right temp, which is like the biggest, best tip I could share.
1: So what's the temperature you think you try to get it to? I mean, I would think in my brain, like 350, 325, somewhere around there.
2: Yeah, 100%. Like you want to go up to 350 and like do like a slower, gentler fry so you get that crisp slowly and then you can make a lot of latkes in a row and you're not worried about the oil burning and you're able to just make that big batch for your family. There are like people just eat them. The hardest thing about making latkes, it's like when you're on a grill and like everyone's just grabbing your food and you can't make it fast enough.
3: <laughs> so
2: that's what happens when you make latkes.
1: That's why I got to carry that sharp knife so they can scare them off. And listen, I always (laughs) tell people a great tip. If that oil is getting too hot on you, the easiest way to cool it down, just add a little more oil.
0: Oh, that's a good tip. I like that. Yeah. Shifra, I know a lot of what you do is you take what you learned as a child in your own family and you modernize it. Mm -hmm. Can you share with us some of the traditional dishes that you had growing up around your kosher table and how you've updated them or sort of evolved them? into modern cuisine?
2: Okay, so a major traditional dish that I grew up with is gefilte fish, okay? Uh, Gefilte fish is something that you have to, like, I think have since you're two to enjoy. (laughs) It's ground up fish that's like solidified in a roll and it's sort of like fish pate and it's served cold. We love to use it to make a lot of different exciting things. I once made a dish imitation crab cakes using gefilte fish. And I took the gefilte fish, which is basically ground fish, mixed it with Old Bay seasoning and breadcrumbs, a little bit of mayo, and put imitation crab and fry them up into patties. And they are almost the same. And that is like the biggest twist that I've ever done on this classic, classic kosher dish. Wow. Uh, very exciting. And that's what we love to do um, at Felicix Magazine, which is all about like celebrating tradition. But like with the modern twist, we're bringing the tradition into the 21st century.
0: That actually makes gefilte fish sound appealing. Uh, yeah, no, I <laughs> I am only a quarter Jewish. When I was introduced to gefilte fish at a young age, and I stomped my feet, <laughs> refused to eat it. But I would eat that. What you just described. Yes, and we've
2: we've gone as far in the magazine to do. We did an article where we cooked gefilte fish sous vide okay. in in a pressure cooker, like we did all the modern modern technology cooking gefilte fish. It was so fun to do. It was like a Cook's Illustrated style, like how to cook gefilte fish the best way. So we have a lot of fun with these type of traditional foods, definitely.
1: Wow, I've never thought about sous vide and gefilte fish. I, I don't know how I <laughs> feel about that. <laughs> That's kind of crazy. Uh, Hanukkah falls close to Thanksgiving this year. Do you have any ideas for, you know, that are kind of great for both holidays? Or I mean, Can you share one or two of them with us?
2: We actually, in the latest Hanukkah issue, we had an article all about pumpkin. And we did this uh, delicata squash, beer batter delicata squash. Oh, yeah, and we actually talking. used pumpkin beer as well, like, Like just to enforce that pumpkin vibe. Um, So that's a really fun way to celebrate. Another fun recipe that we've done in the magazine, we did um, a baklava pumpkin pie. You have to see it. It's incredible. It's like a mashup between a pecan pie and a pumpkin pie and the Middle Eastern baklava, which is like uh, phyllo dough, uh, nuts. Is it layered? Yeah, it's like layered nut dessert with phyllo dough and it's drenched in like a syrup. So we just put pumpkin and pumpkin spice between the layers. And it's so amazing, but another fun thing to do actually is to make pumpkin or sweet potato latkes, because you can merge like the two traditions. It's really fun because you can make latkes with anything.
1: I love this this type of food this year, Montesol. I really do. Like just the season, like this, all this food makes me feel happy. Huh? I was afraid she was gonna say beer battered gefilte fish, and I was about to have to leave. <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay, now I'm gonna try it, and I'm gonna like, you know bring you some or something.
0: <laughs> I love I love what we're talking about these new concepts on classics, and that's um, that brings me to your magazine Fleischigs, which has been described as the kosher Bon Appetit. I know that you and your husband are part of this community that put this magazine together, so. Why decide to, to make this magazine, and how has it been received? Because I can tell you, as someone who does, I certainly do not follow kosher tradition, but I have seen your magazine, I've read it, and as just someone who loves food, I've taken recipes from it. How or why did you decide to come up with this, this concept and this magazine?
2: I mean, firstly, that's so heartwarming to hear. I really appreciate that. Um, that means so much. In our community specifically, print is not dead because we keep Shabbat. And so we sort of shut off for 24 hours. People are desperate for things to read. So it wasn't as intimidating from like that perspective to go into print. When we decided to go and do it, we really wanted to create this sort of media outlet that offers, we call it ungoogleable content, where you read things that you wouldn't even be able to Google or even think to Google. And you read it and you're like, wow, this is so interesting. Um, whether it's cooking tips, but even more so like stories, you know, like in the Hanukkah issue, we, we did a whole Syrian Meza spread where we showcase what the Syrian Jewish community is eating on Hanukkah and their fried foods and their story. Um, And it's really interesting. It's something that I even learned so much from as we were researching it. So that's really what we're all about. And we also really want to bring people together. We showcase a lot of different types of people. We like to unify the community. And that's a big goal of ours, too.
1: You've got a fried chicken recipe. Or some tips yes. for making a fried chicken that I think people should hear.
2: Yes. So, again, as a kosher cook, you watch so much fried chicken recipes revolve around buttermilk. We have our kosher version, which is making your own buttermilk. And then we did last year, Hanukkah, we did like a skewer of fried chicken, like drenched in this like secret sauce. It was so good. And we also did a Nashville hot chicken. But actually, you'll find schnitzel to be something really popular like everybody who keeps kosher makes schnitzel schnitzel is like our version of fried chicken Mm -hmm. in our community you will go to everyone everyone knows how to make it so great it's like a real classic it's the traditional way you know you do the flour egg breadcrumb but we have also a lot of the more exciting versions that we've developed over the years is oven baked like how to make it healthier, which speaks to people's concern today not to fry everything. The best way to do oven baked, that I'm sure you know, is to do the wire rack over a sheet pan and sort of like flip it as you go. Of course. And you really get that really crispy exterior.
1: Of course. You don't want it to be sitting in its own own fat. I just want to just backtrack what you said that you talked about making your own buttermilk. I'm just It's a very easy process, but maybe you could talk about that just really quick through here so people understand that.
2: It's essentially buttermilk is a little bit of a sour, thicker version of milk. So uh, we just take soy milk or almond milk and add a little bit of vinegar or lemon juice to it and let it sit for a little bit so that it really becomes cohesive, like one, you know, and then we use that instead of buttermilk. Perfect. Uh, My favorite fried chicken is Nashville hot. what about you? Are
1: you kidding me? Nashville hot for sure. But I'm an extra crispy guy. You know, I grew up down south and they would fry that chicken so hard and we'd drench it with hot sauce. That's what we do. I
0: love, love extra crispy. And uh, true story, I've never purchased buttermilk because I always go to make a recipe and I forget and I see buttermilk and I just take whatever milk is in my refrigerator and then turn it with lemon or vinegar. So can we can we circle back to Hanukkah? We talked, you started the conversation by telling us about this, the miracle that occurs in the Jewish community. Mm -hmm. How do you think that message resonates, not just for Jews, but I think for all of our listeners for this particular time of year, especially in light of the past two years that we've had?
2: Yeah, I mean, the message that we grew up with, and this is what was so great in general, like when you keep kosher, the food is a representation of something deeper, it actually like means something. So the miracle that happened where the the light of the menorah lasted for eight days and really saved the Jewish people really represents the idea of light. A little bit of light can really push away a lot of darkness. And every single person has so much light to share and so much light to give. And when we think about what we can offer and what we offer to the world and what we offer to those around us and we utilize it and spread our light as corny as it could sound, it really, really can make such a big difference and have such a ripple effect. And everybody has so much positive purpose and impact that they can have when you think about the world that way.
1: It's such a great message. I mean, anyone can use that message. You know, that, that's, I mean, I saw say, it's universal amongst everybody. What a, what a great message. Yeah, 100%. Tell us about some of the traditions you do now in your family or some things you grew up with that you've carried on to now.
2: Yeah, I mean, we have the, the we play dreidel, um, which is really fun. <laughs> <laughs> you know, sometimes we played with real money, but like as kids, it was like pennies and dines and nickels. <laughs> but it was still fun. Uh, we give Hanukkah gelds. It's always really fun as kids, especially like to collect the money and compare how much you got. And then you come back to school after Hanukkah and everyone talks about how much money they made. So we do that. We have a lot of parties and get-togethers. So Hanukkah is a really nice time to have parties, get-togethers. In New York, there's a lot of, in the tri-state area, there's a lot of public menorah lightings. And that's really, really fun. Um, My kids were part of like a Hanukkah parade. We put like a Hanukkah menorah on our car and drove into Manhattan with music. Nice. So that's a really fun tradition that we do. It just gets you into the spirit. And again, like spreads light and spreads joy. That's really what we're all about during this time.
1: What about food traditions? Anything you stick with there?
2: Latkes. Most people don't make donuts. I mean, can you imagine making donuts at home? It's not so easy. So we usually buy donuts and make latkes. That's pretty much the way we celebrate food-wise. A lot of people also eat dairy. Dairy is another sort of smaller custom. There's this whole story of this woman in the time of the temple who actually helped win the war, by bringing cheese and wine to one of the generals <laughs> and she made him like she got him to fall asleep with his cheese and wine platter and they were able to win about a big battle so because of this woman and because of this uh this thing that she did people eat dairy
1: wow but no beer battered gefilte fish or we're not sous vide no. right
3: <laughs> <laughs> awesome
1: uh, well, Schiffer, we thank you so much for spending some time talking to us about Hanukkah and food and just even sharing the story, which I think is universal amongst everybody. We really appreciate your time.
0: That was really great. Thank you. That ray of light was Shifra Klein. She's the editor-in-chief and co-founder of Flashex Magazine, a publication devoted to modern kosher cooking. We'll have a link at ctpublic.org slash seasoned. Then later in the hour, what makes a wine kosher? a explains and shares some of his favorite kosher wines. I'm Marisol Castro.
1: And I'm Chef Plum. Coming up after the break, I visit a local kosher market where a longtime customer described the food as being made with love. That's the best kind, if you ask me.
3: The latkes are great. The knishes are great. The deli is great. The soups. Oh, my God. The chicken soups.
1: This is Seasoned. We'll be right back.
0: back to Seasoned, I'm Marisol Castro.
1: And I'm Chef Plum.
0: The Crown Market in West Hartford has been serving the Jewish community in Connecticut for more than 80 years. Our next guests are executive chef and co-general manager Andrea Gosek and produce manager Mark Seltzer. Mark is the grandson of one of the original owners, and he has seen generations of families come through the store. Plum spoke with Andrea and Mark on a very busy Friday morning about what makes the Crown Market so special.
4: Oh, God, the store was originated in 1940, yeah. so it's going to be 82 years. Wow, how about that? Originally it was in Hartford on Albany Avenue, that was the enclave of the Jewish community, but as the population moved west and, and uh, people migrated, the store did the same thing. The reputation was it was the largest kosher store in New England for many, many years.
1: Well, what's, but, what's the key to the staying power here? I mean, this play, for being as business as long as we've been in business?
5: I think it's the niche, the kosher, the kosher market aspect of it. Um, It's the tradition and we have all of that and yet we're also current. We've been brought into the 20th century and current day with fresher foods, newer foods, but we still keep the things that people come here and look for, like the chicken liver, the knish and the good corned beef and and all of that, so.
1: We heard it already, the families who have been coming here forever, they still continue to come. Their children come, their
4: grandchildren Mm -hmm. come. We like to say we're from cradle to grave. Oh, <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know how you can make <laughs> that sound. But, well, I mean, but, do, but, I, when people but die, you do food. When we they, do. do. We, we when what they call born, shivers. We
5: give them a, baby a bris namings or, or brisses. Naming, oh, right?
4: it, it, yeah. And especially the people. We've had stories of people that move into town from out of town and they move here because there is a kosher market yeah. that they can shop at. Right, right. right. Believe it or not, you That's know, some some people go for schools and doctors and different. Here the, there's a part of the community that needs a store like this. Yeah. And we just are happy to service it as best we can. Right. Not perfect, but best we can. What the, what do you
1: think the market offers that you're incredibly proud of Andre? Like what is something that, you know, this is what we're so proud of? I mean, the, I mean, we have tons of kosher items, right. including sushi,
3: right. uh, rye
1: bread, Thousands and thousands, and I mean, can we say tens of thousands of (laughs) latkes?
5: Tens of at Hanukkah time, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess I'm proud of when I walk in and I see the variety in the case, and it's not just you know like. Bean salad and coleslaw and potato salad. We have a lot of ethnic additional foods. We have fresher foods. I mean, we do Indian. That's kosher. We do Chinese. That's kosher. On any given day, there's you know 50 different items in our deli case yeah. that people can come and choose from. All kosher. All kosher. Yep. Some are vegan. Some are veg- strictly veg- you know vegan, vegetarian, um, and then there's all the meat items. So it, we fit everybody's niche pretty much.
1: Perfect. Let's talk about those lockers for a second. Okay. I, I got to walk downstairs <laughs> and see them on the flat top. Yes. Working hard down there. Yep. Um, simple ingredients. Tell me about the potato variety we use. Uh, what goes into it as much as you can? And, and, and they're, they're gluten-free.
5: They are gluten-free, yes. Um, we use just a straight Idaho potato. And we mix it with a rehydrated hash brown. And then onions and potato flake, salt, pepper, garlic, egg, do you cook That's the potatoes it. first, then
1: shred them, or nope? No, okay, Strictly
5: good. Strictly raw, raw. The, well, the hash browns are cooked,
4: uh-huh.
5: and they're mixed with the raw potato and the raw onion and the egg, and then they're formed and put on the flat top.
4: Yeah,
1: and, and we just that, that flat top I saw—it's probably about
5: he does uh, like two and a half feet wide. Yeah, he does 55 at a at a run. At a
1: 55 time. at a time.
5: 55 at a time. And we
1: eventually get to like 14,000.
5: We're making yes, we make about a thousand a day.
1: That's yeah. a lot.
5: He oh. stands there. God bless him all day long. <laughs> the Poor guy. you, you <laughs> got to wring them out from the oil at the end of the we day. we got to get them yeah. don't we? Yeah, yeah right.
4: We sell them year-round, though, too. That's mm-hmm. the other thing, even though Hanukkah is the big. Right. But, sure. you know, we get them year-round. People yeah. eat them all year-round.
5: Yeah. And we do the homemade applesauce to go with it as well. Oh, delicious. Yeah? Delicious. Yeah.
1: So as a market specializing in Jewish food uh, with so many kosher items and observing Jewish dietary customs, what are the challenges? Or maybe not really considered challenges, but what do you do It's different than like Whole Foods or a stop and shop? I mean, do rabbis come through and and bless everything or how does that work?
5: So we have a supervisory board that we answer to, but we also in the store... That's
1: the most non-Jewish person question I could have ever asked in my life right there, but, you know.
5: (laughs) Um, At any given time, we have two, what they're called, in the building and they are supervising what's coming in the door, making sure that everything is supervised and has a, what's called a heksher, which is the kosher symbolism on them. Um, so there's one up here in the deli and on the floor, and then we have one full-time in the kitchen.
1: How do the kitchen people like them? Oh, they like, they, they do, love. They're not, yeah, he's in the yeah. way. Oh, you know, guy, well, you know.
5: they get in the way a little bit, but it, it's a necessity that yeah. we need. You know, they have to wash all the lettuces and vegetables, mm-hmm. check for bugs, because bugs aren't kosher. Right. So we can't be eating the bugs. Like non-kosher <laughs> bugs. Non-kosher bugs. <laughs> non-kosher bugs, yeah. <laughs> right, right. But yeah, they're, they're just part of our natural. It's of life. It's right.
4: the way we do it. Right. You know, we don't know different yeah, we don't know even the new employees when they come in. They know that blue, red, and green are different designated mm-hmm. colors for different types of foods. We have separate sinks. We have, you yeah. know yeah. one day I, I I went into the wrong sink, just hold a knife and Ooh, I was so like, like Whoa. Yeah, yeah. No, they'll tell you right. They tell you right away. Don't do it. And it was-
5: everything in the case is yep. designated. so the the non-meat items are in black containers and they have green writing for parve blue writing in like the bakery case designates that it. it's got dairy items in it and then the meat side of the deli is all white dishes and red writing on all the labels. Gotcha. Yeah.
1: It's helpful to know how terms like kosher and parv are defined by Jewish law. I asked Andrea and Mark to help me understand.
5: For me, kosher means, it stems from the line in the Bible, thou shall not eat a child dipped in its mother's milk. So that's kind of where the defining between meat and dairy and parv came from. So you don't eat cheeseburgers. We don't make anything on the meat side that has any kind of dairy product in it whatsoever. And same with the things on the non-meat side. There's no um, dairy product or meat in them either. So we keep that separate.
4: Uh, it also entails the way the meat and uh, poultry is slaughtered. You know, it's it's done in a humane way where it's not sitting in its own blood. So it's done quickly and, uh, you know, with the least amount of... Uh, I guess as you could say and also certain fish are not considered kosher because they're they're bottom feeders so they're scavengers so that's no
5: shellfish right no no shellfish. and no pork products. right right nothing right. with a has to have a split hoof and that, chew its own yeah. cut
4: right that's right yeah yeah,
1: yeah. so there's lots yeah. of ways to make great food I've had amazing kosher lamb bacon yeah.
4: which is delicious oh yeah, oh we yeah. Have yeah. Turkey, bacon, pastrami, turkey pastrami turkey pastrami. right they call yeah. it bacon fake right. no
1: really fake yeah, <laughs> okay, yeah. I swear to god
3: that's what they call it yep.
1: that's amazing yeah. Yeah. can you tell us what parve means cuz you know we we all hear kosher but there's a lot of other terminology in here that we you know maybe we don't know
5: right so parve means there's no meat or no dairy product in the the salads or the starches or okay. whatever that we've made so it's completely neutral so to speak and it can go with your meat meal or with your dairy meal and it's just, it's a lot of vegetables and salads and, and all of that. So, yeah. so it's kind of it's like... Just it's just a neutral. Yeah, it's, it's like just Sweden. goes in everything. Or Switzerland, or, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Parv, is Switzerland. Parv is a Switzerland. in the kosher world.
1: <laughs> As you can imagine, a lot of people shop at the Crown Market every day. We got a chance to talk to one of them, Sherry Haller of West Hartford.
3: This is so fun. I've been coming to the store since I was born, basically, because my parents loved this store when it was in hartford and we grew up with this store i grew up with this store
1: and how many times a week are you over here
3: oh probably three two wow. to three
1: that's fantastic yeah um what's one of your favorite things they make in house here
3: first of all our wonderful chef has brought incredible variety to the section where you can purchase things that are already the prepared foods, the prepared foods. i don't really cook so it's really important to me have great stuff and it's delicious it's spectacular so that's one thing The other thing is, though, there's a Yiddish word called Hamish. I don't know how to describe it. It's really just that it's family here. Not only are the prepared foods good and I can get everything I need here, but it's Hamish, so there are people who have been working here. The baker has been working here. Mark, I I don't remember when he wasn't working here. Uh, And I can go in and we can talk a little politics and we can get a cupcake. I've got a delicious cupcake that I always get. and I think of my father and mother when I come here, and they're gone.
1: Wow, so. kind of brings you back.
3: And at the holidays, I come on holidays, not because I'm, sorry dad, not very religious any at all, but because then I see people who I don't typically see. Yeah. And so they're all here, they're all buying, and we're all kibitzing. It's, it's a joy to have this place. It's a very, it's a jewel.
1: Do you try any of the latkes? Do you have any of those?
3: Oh, the latkes are great. The caniches are great, the deli is great, the soups—oh my God—the chicken soups are fabulous. She's
1: holding her head right now, everyone. Because so you know
3: it's—they're just everything. It's made with a little bit of love, and it's made with a lot of care, and it comes across in the food.
1: Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you.
3: <laughs> it's my pleasure. I, I'm honored to be able to share how I feel.
1: So while people are pushing carts throughout the store and getting these wonderful foods in the case. Below is where all the magic's happening down in the basement, and there's so much stuff yes. going on down there. We took a tour and walked around. I thought it was yep. <laughs> great. I loved it. Thank uh, you. Talk about what's happening down there. It's like it's like almost like a David Blaine magic trick. Like you're seeing <laughs> all, the store up here. It's beautiful, and then you go downstairs, and it's just this
5: the magic army of people. There is. There's an army. They just they know what's to be made. Tuna, coleslaw. I mean, we go through. Probably almost 200 pounds of tuna a day. World famous tuna. World famous tuna. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. there was a whole Facebook feed, people trying to figure out our recipe for tuna. <laughs>
3: yeah,
1: yeah. can eats Not only are we serving families for generations here, but you kind of have your own little family
5: here. We do. We do, and they're they're great.
0: That was Andrea Gosek and Mark Seltzer, the team behind the Crown Market on Bishop's Corner in West Hartford. Check out our Instagram over the holiday to see video of latkes sizzling away on their flat-top griddle. Find us at CT Public. I'm Marisol
1: Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we explore the world of kosher wines with sommelier Yair Lynchner.
6: There's so much variety in kosher wine that the fact is you have lots of options. You know, there isn't just the Cabernet and the Sauvignon Blanc anymore.
1: This is Seasoned. We'll be right back. ¶¶
0: Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro.
1: And I'm Chef Plum.
0: Hanukkah is right around the corner, so we're talking about the foods you might eat and the drinks you might drink during those eight days of festivities. Our next guest is Yair Lenchner. He's a private chef, a sommelier, and a certified nutritionist based in New York.
1: For years, Yair helped run his parents' kosher catering company, where we had lots of opportunity to explore the world of kosher wine. I started by asking him how kosher wine is different from other wine.
6: All things considered, kosher winemaking process is very similar to the uh, the regular vinification process for any other kind of wine, you know, from grape to bottle. There's a couple of things that might set it aside. One word that we're going to talk about today is mevushal. In Hebrew, it literally means cooked or been cooked. And if you hear me pronouncing it differently, the, the Yiddish is mevushal, the Hebrew is mevushal. And that is a process of, well, frankly, what it sounds like, a little bit of cooking the wine. Now, uh, wine from start to finish often needs uh, kosher supervision. Sometimes that literally just means Jewish people have handled the wine. In some cases, that means a rabbi has to specifically bless it. But what goes on with this word *mavushal* or *mavushal* is that you know a long time ago we were concerned that the wine we would be drinking was actually intended for idol worshippers. So what we did was we created a system where we would make the wine unfit for those idol worshipers so that they wouldn't want to drink it themselves. In fact, if you ever heard the phrase pour one out, it goes back biblically. uh, And idol worshipers would very specifically pour the wine on the ground in an homage to their idols. So what we did was we created wine that would be so different that they couldn't even pour it on the ground. (laughs) What this Mubushal thing has done, it has created a place where You no longer need to pay attention to the start to finish process of only Jews have touched the wine. So once it is Mabushal, once it has been, has undergone this process, anyone can pour the wine. You know, God forbid a Catholic pours your wine. Yes, it's still kosher. And like the truth is, these days, that's a huge deal, right? You have a kosher wedding. You can't guarantee that every one of your waiters is Jewish. Not every one of your waiters is going to be a Sabbath observing chassid, right? It's like it's impossible. So, I want to stop you for one second. Absolutely. I want to stop
1: you for one, one second, yeah, yeah, just because the language of wine is almost its own language in itself. But now you're throwing in, like you said, these Yiddish words, these other words like Mubushel. Am I saying that right? Yeah, yeah. The entire language, does it change completely with wine?
6: No. Um, and really, this is the only corner that really changes in the world of kosher wine. You know, there's the uh, kosher wine that isn't Mubushel has been treated basically the same as any other given wine. Uh, with the exception that it's been supervised, sort of like how kosher food is supervised. Is there really anything different about, uh, I don't know, kosher chicken? Uh, sure, yeah, maybe we butcher it a little bit differently. But basically, it's a bird that we, you know, we kill it and we eat it and we proceed. So that's kind of the thing with the wine. The, the movicial thing is the piece. It's the biggest difference in kosher wine. I'll just put it that way. Yeah.
1: Can we define the cooking part of the wine that you're talking about? The, uh, it's basically pasteurizing it, right?
6: Absolutely. So it used to be that we would literally boil the wine, of course, that, you know, uh, if you speak to really anybody who enjoys wine, they're going to tell you, well, that's going to ruin the wine,
1: ruin the flavor, right?
6: Absolutely. And frankly, that was true. I can't remember exactly how long ago, but at, at one point, the the shift, uh, it was decided by one of these lead rabbis that we don't actually have to go to full boil, that what we really all we need to do is do this flash pasteurization process, which is going to be 180 degrees for one minute.
1: So the boiling is 212 Correct. And then instead of doing that, we can just bring it to 180.
6: And just for one minute. So all things considered, is that going to affect the wine? Perhaps. But for such a short time and not quite boiled, you can still create really, really wonderful wines uh, while still undergoing that process.
1: So people probably associate kosher wine with vineyards in Israel. Are there other countries starting to catch up?
6: Absolutely. There is a ton of good wine coming out of Italy, a ton of good wine coming out of France, Chile, Argentina, uh, Spain. There's a lot of really great wines going on right now, and you know one name in particular, the Rothschild family. Which, if you are into wine, you know that Baron Rothschild has created you know some of the greatest wines in French winemaking history. Of course, and that family has gotten involved in kosher winemaking as well. So it's not only Israel; it's not only the big three. You know, France, Israel, Italy. You know, uh, kosher wines are popping up everywhere these days.
1: So how has kosher wine evolved over time? Because I think of you know that Manischewitz bottle you see like in the grocery store or something. How has it evolved?
6: Frankly, uh, uh, very similar to kosher food in New York, the standard was very low. People came to accept that Manischewitz is what you would drink. If it wasn't Manischewitz, it was ketim, it was Concord grape, whatever. Boone's Farm of um, Wine. Exactly, right? <laughs> so So it's undergone a lot. And I think that as the Jewish community has assimilated, first of all, uh, has become less observant as kosher people have relaxed their standards, but still want to maintain some level of kosher standards, the wine industry has shifted to accommodate that. That has also gone hand in hand with Jewish affluence. The, The sort of garbage Manischewitz wines are cheap. So while the standards were low and while the communities that were demanding them were not particularly affluent, that was fine. And nobody really said anything about it. you know. No, sure, yeah, we're drinking Manischewitz. That's what we're doing. <laughs> Frankly, as Jews like myself, who are not particularly observant, but still show up at the Passover table, still show up at home for Hanukkah, still you know want to be with our families, I care about wine and I don't want to drink Manischewitz. I'm certainly no rich guy, but I, I have enough money to spend more than $11 on a bottle of Manischewitz. Right. And so both the demand has gone up, the ability to afford that better product has increased, and as those two things have happened, the market has shifted. These producers have started to invest more in their kosher wine programs. They realize that there is a slice of the market that really is interested in good wines. Um, and then, as frankly, as Jews have become more and more affluent, they themselves have invested and gotten involved in some of these vineyards, personally carrying them up into a place you know, that could provide great wines for everybody.
1: What should listeners look for in a kosher wine and what should they avoid?
6: You know, I, I think the answer is the same for kosher wine as frankly, it is for regular wine. The first thing I just want to say is, yes, Mabushel can be a red flag. And a lot of people say, well, if it's Mabushel, yeah, it's terrible. I, I, that's not quite the case. And when we get there, you know, I'm going to actually recommend a couple of Mabushel wines in particular. But I think that the answer, like with regular wine, is there is no silver bullet. You got to walk into a store, think to yourself, okay, well, do I want a red today? Do I want a white today? What do I like in a wine? Do I like a big wine, a small wine? There's so much variety in kosher wine that the fact is you have lots of options. You know, there isn't just the Cabernet and the Saint Blanc anymore. You get Viognier, you get Montepulciano, you get all sorts of different stuff these days. So what should they look for? What should they avoid? I think that you should go in uh, with maybe a couple of friends, find a couple of different bottles that, that sort of work within your price range and do a little tasting. You know, there are tastings around the city you know, at least in New York, I'm, I'm from New York and, you know, there there are often tastings uh, associated with synagogues. I know Lincoln Square Synagogue in New York has a big tasting and often before the holidays, they'll come in and all of these uh, different uh, wineries and uh, distributors will come in, showcase their wines. And frankly, like I said, just like with unkosher wine, it takes some practice. There's no... Well, definitely get the ones from Italy. They're the only ones who know what they're doing. It's just not true. Right, right. Um, So I would suggest for anybody who's really, who is trying to break out of the Manischewitz prison, go to the kosher wine section, pick up two or three, don't break the bank yet. You know, we're just trying to figure out what you like and start there. If you find, let's say you're like me, you don't always keep kosher, but you're going to a kosher home. You know, you want to bring a bottle of wine, follow the same kinds of wines that you like in your regular everyday life. You're an Italian red drinker. There's Italian reds out there for you. You like Prosecco, we can find you kosher Prosecco. So I think the answer is like, well, you know, uh, let's talk about what you're eating. Are we eating fish? Are we eating red meat? Obviously fish, you know, white flesh fish. We're going to look for some nice bright white wines, steak dinner. We're having brisket tonight. No surprise, right? We're going to look for a nice big red. These days, there is something for everybody.
1: So pairing it like you normally would, yeah. you can get kosher wines pretty much the same way you get any other wine these days.
6: Yeah, absolutely. I guess one thing I would say is just like with regular wine, you know, it is often the case that the big mass-produced wines with, you know, the big single label may not be quite so interesting and may be exactly the kind of thing that you're scared of when you walk into the kosher wine section. You know, that not that of course, that's not absolute. There's of course giant wine houses that make garbage wines and great wines and that's why I say part of this is about, you know, trial and error. That's that's really all it is. I, I would perhaps stay away from some of the giant houses, but even there, as you'll as we'll you know, as we'll get into, I think there are there are winners to be found all around.
1: I know you're an Italian wine guy, kind of in general. What about like a uh, like what, what's your go-to Italian kosher wine? That you can think of off the top of your head? Does that put you on the spot?
6: Oh, it does not put me on the spot at all. I've been drinking Borgo Real, that's B-O-R. G-O, next word, R-E-A-L-E, for a very long time. They make a lot of great wines, reds, whites. My go-to wine as far as the Borgo Real is actually the Montepulciano.
1: It's a grape variety. It's not a
6: wine type. It's a grape variety. Thank you for that clarity. That's absolutely right. And in Italy, often the wines are named after the grape. So that's sort of, you know, yeah. th- th- that is often how that goes. So Montepulciano d'Abruzzo is a wine that I drink a lot, be that kosher, unkosher. And even as a... Uh, Non kosher wine drinker, I find myself drinking some of that Munchbogiano, anyways, because it's delicious, it's affordable, it's food friendly.
1: I'm not. I'm not Jewish. I'm not going to try to find this wine. Hopefully, it doesn't offend anybody if I want to buy it.
6: <laughs> Absolutely not. Listen, hey Plum, next time you come over, we'll have a glass together.
1: I would love that. Actually, we should make that happen. So there'll be lots of kosher wines poured throughout the holidays through Hanukkah. Can you make some general wine pairing recommendations for us? Some things you like. You know, just kind of like which varieties pair well with classic Hanukkah food, stuff like that.
6: Absolutely. So. Konica food, I think we all know latkes, you know, latkes are the star event here. Latkes, if for anyone that's not super familiar, basically it's a potato pancake. Delicious. Usually shredded potatoes, sometimes pureed potatoes, sometimes sweet potato, if you're a little crazy, you know, if you're a little truffle oil in there, if you're feeling freaky. <laughs> Whoa, easy, easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Family friendly here. But, <laughs> you know, the point is we're looking at fried, we're looking at potato. So for me, you know, we're looking at some white wines. In particular, one that I really love uh, is the Dalton Viognier. Uh, Another fairly affordable wine. Viognier in general is going to be bright. Lots of fruit, apricot. It's silky smooth, um, a little bit honeyed, light notes of vanilla and caramel. And it's going to be just acidic enough to help you with some of that fatty food.
1: I love Viognier. It's an easy drinking wine
6: right? Easy drinking wine. You can drink it by itself. You can drink it paired with food. And you know, one thing I like to do is this isn't per se. We're not pairing a glass of wine to a single bite, right? We want to pair it with latkes, but we also right. want to make sure that, hey, maybe there's salmon coming up later. And I want to make sure that the, the wine is going to work with that too. And for that, I, I think biognier is a really great option. Dalton is a wonderful producer from the Galilee in Israel, and it's relatively easy to find. I, I do a lot of my, my shopping actually on the internet on uh, kosherwine.com. Well named website. Uh, they have a great selection of Dalton. They have that Viognier there, about 19.99, really affordable, easy to find. And that Dalton wine is not Mavushal. So for those that find that as a red flag and and just a non starter, go try that Dalton. Not Mavushal, created and, and made in classic vinification process. That that Burgo Real Pulciano is in fact Mavushal, like I mentioned earlier.
1: A great one to check out too. And again, Viognier is a great varietal, and Dalton is the producer. Yes. So, how about another one? So, like, what about a wine maybe to pair with uh, some red meats you're going to have during this time of
6: year? I love the producer Ramon Cardova from Spain. They have a relatively broad spectrum of wines as well. My favorite is the Rioja Crianza. It's their Rioja again is the wine. The Crianza is is sort of their more special, more reserve selection. Um, this one is slightly more, but still twenty two dollars. Very much affordable. Great notes of wild berries, subtle vanilla, pepper, bay leaf, sort of a little bit spicy. Definitely works with your like smoky braised meat kind of stuff.
1: Lamb, it sounds like it'd be great for lamb.
6: Great for lamb, absolutely. My mother likes to make lamb breast a lot, like in the way that you might make a veal breast or something like that, or Uh braised meat kind of thing. And I think this Rioja would be excellent for that. The other nice thing for me about Rioja is unlike a giant cab, or right, a giant Cali cab, it stands well on its own. Yeah. Um, it's not super big and you feel like you got to eat something with it to kind of balance it out. It's a lovely wine. Great for sitting on the couch and great for having two or three glasses if your mother-in-law's around, Yeah. Hey, there you go. Hey. One other wine I, I want to give a quick shout out to that gets a really bad rap, but in my family is frankly just the biggest hit, Bartonura. Bartonura is the, is the winemaker. They are... All of the things that I just said you should avoid, Bartonura. (laughs) They are mass produced. It's kind of tacky. It's a little sweet. There's like, it's got a blue bottle. Why am I buying this now? (laughs) Why Why are we buying this now, right? Absolutely. It is on my table every Jewish holiday. It's a little bit low alcohol. It sort of takes the place of those low alcohol Rieslings where you feel like you kind of want to drink wine all night. This one's a Moscato. It's a light white, very light, very fruity, uh, lots of aroma, like super naturally rich in all those perfumed aromatic things. It's fun to drink. It feels celebratory. That little hint of sugar on a celebratory festive holiday is really just what you're looking for. It's not quite sweet enough for dessert. It's not, you know, it's not an ice wine. It's not a late harvest Riesling, but it's super fresh super refreshing and you know if uh if you got to sneak one half a glass to your 17 year old cousin you know that that's the one to do it it's, it's that low alcohol wine it's you know am i allowed to say that that's, it's uh sure it, yeah and that's it it's celebratory it's yummy it's easy drinking it's a crowd pleaser
1: that blue bottle looks great on the table looks
6: great on the table That's fantastic.
1: Well, Yair, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge of kosher wines with us. It was really, really good info, man. I appreciate that.
6: Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. That was
0: sommelier Yair Lenchner. He's a private chef and a certified nutritionist in New York. Before we go, leading into the holidays, we're shining a light on organizations in the state who are feeding people in their communities.
1: Allison Batson is the founder and creator of Dinner for a Dollar, a program that for at least 10 years has been feeding people in Hamden hot meals every weekend. Allison, thank you for joining us here on Seasoned.
7: Thank you for having me, Chef Plum.
1: It might be obvious by the name, but can you tell our listeners what Dinner for a Dollar is?
7: Dinner for a Dollar is a weekly communal supper that we've had, like you said, for the past 10 years where anyone and everyone is welcome and invited to come. We serve hot, home-cooked food, and we welcome everybody to come. We have a community of friends and, well, people who are now friends and family. And we get together every Friday night, and now every Saturday night, and starting up on Sunday nights.
1: It's not just giving a free meal. It's kind of preserving that dignity. Like, let me at least pay something for this, which I think is so important. I think it's a part that people don't really think about.
7: People don't think about it, and that's good. We don't want anybody to think about the money part because... We want people to feel like they're guests in our home because they kind of are. They're guests in our home and the food we cook is like the same thing you would cook for dinner at your house. And we serve it the same way we would serve for dinner at our house. Pre-pandemic, when we were all inside, we served on plates with flatware and um, it includes coffee and iced tea and all our meals include dessert. They're home cooked, cooked with love, cooked with care. We, we love doing it.
1: Yeah, the dollar is more of an optional type of donation. but The
7: dollar is a donation. And, yeah. you know, there was a stigma attached to people thinking they're getting a free meal. You can put in a dollar, you can put in not, you can put in more. Like you said, it preserves people's dignity that can't afford the dollar or, or can't afford it this week. But it preserves their dignity and it makes people feel like they're getting something and they're, they're contributing something in the same way.
1: How many people are you feeding each week?
7: Pre-pandemic, which is our new language now, yeah. pre-pandemic <laughs> we would serve in-house about fifty to sixty meals, mm-hmm. and that's since doubled since the whole um, for the past eighteen months. Because now we do a drive-through, every, all our meals are packaged to go, so our numbers are about roughly we serve around a hundred meals every Friday night.
1: Wow, that's incredible.
7: But I think it's important for people to know that Dinner for a Dollar is a community of people a community of volunteers, a community of guests. And what started out as helping our community, what we thought was the Christian thing to do is to reach out and provide support for our community turned into a separate community in and of itself. We have volunteers from synagogues, we have volunteers from Baptist churches, we have volunteers from civic groups, restaurants, local restaurants. And We've all become one big community. So whenever, I like to say, whenever you come to dinner for a dollar, you're already one of our guests. You're never a stranger.
1: Where can people find you every week?
7: So every week we're at Grace and St. Peter's Church, which is 2927 Dixwell Avenue in Hamden. On Saturday nights, it's at Hamden Plains United Methodist Church on the corner of Dixwell and Church Street. And now on Sunday afternoons, we're at 1935 State Street which is strictly distribution. We don't cook on that site.
1: So we understand that people come from every walk of life, all backgrounds. Some are experiencing a financial hardship and some are just experiencing loss or exhaustion. No one's ever turned away. No. Can you talk a little bit about the people that you serve?
7: We have such a range of ages, socioeconomic statuses, family makeups. We have seniors that come like you said to stretch their grocery budget to help economically and they also come for company because some of our seniors are starved for loneliness and so they come to enjoy people's companies we have families with children who can come on a Friday night and have say four or five meals depending on how many you know you need and we're talking like I said quality hot home cooked meals we have one of our guests who's been coming her and her husband came for years and years and they were one of our benefactors, he recently passed away. And she has spoken and said that we have been a light for her, a connection for her. And she and her husband were always that for us as well. So it runs the gamut. It could be, like I said, children, families, seniors, and everybody in between, singles, married couples, people experiencing homelessness, and people who are just working and trying to make a living.
1: So, we've seen some of these meals on Facebook Live, and we're talking about some really good, delicious looking food here. Yes. Uh, all made from scratch. Great comfort food barbecue chicken, roast turkey, spaghetti, and meatballs. Great vegetables. All the sides, a salad, a big dessert. Mm-hmm. All prepared fresh in the kitchen by volunteers, right? Yep. Yeah. I mean, you've got me ready to come cook for you right now. I you should come and cook today. for us,
7: chef. Are you kidding <laughs> love me? To. I would freak out if you came and cooked for us, but we would welcome you at any time. Absolutely.
1: We're going to Zoom Pinky Promise. That's what we're going to do. Pinky Promise. (laughs) Okay. I I would love to come do it. How can people help? Can they come down for a meal? Can they drop some money in like a giant donation jar? How can they help? How can they give? What can they do?
7: We literally have a giant donation jar (laughs) that we put out. So if you want to come by at 2927 Dixwell, we're actually right across the street from the Hamden Police Department. We also have a um, website, graceandstpeters.org. And there's a donate button there with a drop down for dinner for a dollar. And on our Facebook page, I just recently put a contact information with, that will take you right to that page. We're also in the process of raising money to purchase a food truck so we can do dinner for a dollar every night of the week.
1: Allison, we thank you so much for taking the time to join us here. I love everything that you're doing.
7: Well, we thank you for shining a light on what we do, and thank you for having me.
0: That was Alison Batson. She's the founder and creator of Dinner for a Dollar in Hamden. I'm Marisol Castro.
1: And I'm Chef Plum. Seasoned is produced by Robin Doyanakin and Katie tolarski Our interns are Abby Levine and Dylan Reyes.
0: Thanks for listening, everybody. Join us next Thursday for a live show with guest Lydia Bastianich. We'll talk with Lydia about her latest book and take your calls about Thanksgiving dinner. It's going to be a good time, so don't miss it. See you next week.